Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to History Worth Repeating. L.B. Hartley wrote, The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. My name is Barbara Brooks, and I'm a professor of history at the University of Otago. And my name is Sonia Tiernan. I'm the Eamon Cleary Professor of Irish Studies at the University of Otago. And together over this series of podcasts, we want to canvas wide aspects of the past, from individual stories to national histories, from political events to emotional tides. We believe that some history is worth repeating, especially if those histories have been previously overlooked, ignored or not deemed worthy of entry into the history books. So it's our great pleasure today to introduce Bettina Bradbury. Bettina is an award-winning historian who built a remarkable career in Canada, but she is by birth a New Zealander. So Bettina, you've long been interested in the history of widowhood and we believe that that is certainly one of the histories that has been overlooked and ignored. So we'd like to begin by you telling us what interested you and drew you to write about the history of widowhood. Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, Well, years ago when I did my PhD, I was interested in how working-class families in Montreal, the city that I've written about most, and Quebec, managed during the early phases of the Industrial Revolution there. And what I came to see is I pieced together rather dry, arid statistics on who worked in families and what they were doing was um, the importance of not only the work of the men who might have... Um, jobs in factories or in crafts, but also of the wives and children who might be earning wages, but as often as not were stretching wages by growing gardens, keeping pigs. One of my best-known articles is entitled Pigs, Cows and Borders. So I was interested <laughs> in those family economies. And you know, as a feminist historian at the time, I was interested in the gendered aspect of it. So what did men do? What did women do? What did both do? And as I pulled that material together, I thought, oh my gosh, well, you know, I don't think these men could survive without the women's support at home and the ways they could make wages stretch if they were lucky. Also, um, what would happen to a woman if there wasn't a male bringing in an income since female wages then, as now, were dramatically lower than other people's. So that made me think about widows. And as I looked, began looking at the information I had on widows, um, what struck me most was the huge numbers of widows. So I began to see widows really as the main category of lone, what they then called lone parents in the past, single parents. I mean, now single parents could include unmarried women, but women who'd been deserted by their husbands. But the vast majority were widows. And that's why in my next book I went on to study widowhood as a phenomenon. And and, um, I think widows are really important because they were everywhere. And 
Today we have a bit of an idea, I think, of a widow as an older woman, grey-haired and in the past wearing black. But these women that I studied in Montreal, some were widowed within weeks of their marriage what, before they were 21. And so widowhood could hit at any time in a woman's life and leave them well-off or poor with no children or lots of children. Um, so I think widows are an interesting category of women who, women who are forced in a way to be independent, but often without the means. And so that interest in widows led me to think about the various ways widows could support themselves or children, including um, the question of whether their husbands had uh, a decent... <laughs> reasonable number of assets and left them anything in a will. So that's how I became interested in inheritance as well. I, I think that's such an interesting reminder of the risk of accidents to men in the 19th century mm. and the type of work they were involved in. Uh, that you know they might die very young from accidents as lumberjacks or <laughs> on, <laughs> on on railways or you know just digging ditches or things like that. And, and Absolutely, and of infectious diseases, yeah. you know, um, typhus, pandemics of kinds, cholera in the 1830s. Um, yeah. Men died at any and every age. When men became widowers, when their wives died first, there was a bit more clustering um, around the ages, the childbearing ages for women, because so many died in childbirth. Yeah. But, Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and different challenges for men. I mean, widows face a very different set of challenges than what widows did, and that also has always interested me. Yeah. So, um, in this book, Caroline's Dilemma, which we are going to discuss today, uh, this was a departure for you in that it led you into Australian history. But mm-hmm. perhaps um, we'll uh, begin, and we'll, we'll let our Listeners know that the book is entitled Caroline's Dilemma, a Colonial Inheritance Saga, and it's a terrific read. Mm. Uh, And one of the key characters, Bettina, is uh, Edward Kearney, who left Ireland in the 1840s, and his family were reasonably well off. So why did he leave for Australia? Well, by the 1840s, when he left, many Irish were leaving Ireland. I mean, a lot of people think that out-migration from Ireland began with the famine, which came after he left. But um, he was one of many who were leaving Ireland in the 1820s, 30s, 40s. But most of them were going to Canada, British North America, the States, sometimes as convicts to Australia or to Australia in other ways. So he's unusual, as you say, in that he came from a reasonably well-off family, although that's not unusual. It's not usually the not always the poorest immigrants who leave, it's the ones who have the means to leave. Um, and he, I think he paid his own passage. But um, I don't have any documents he wrote explaining why he left Ireland. It makes sense to me that though his family was well off, they had a couple of plots of land. So his father was dead. There wasn't much chance they would acquire more land in the sort of tenant farming system of Ireland. He was the third son, so I think his chances of doing well in Ireland were pretty slim, and his chances of doing well in Australia presumably appeared better to him. And in fact, in the end, he did do quite well in Australia. 
Mm. Yeah, um, the, the, the entire story, as, as Barbara said, Caroline Stillemer is absolutely, it's amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I, it was actually, I couldn't put it down, to be honest. <laughs> um, and you, you've spoken about even following um, Edward Kearney's story. And, and you know, the, I'm, I'm really interested in the different archives that you've used. It's the fact as well that you situate your account from the female perspective, which, which you've already kind of mentioned as well, that it's a very male-dominated world, that we've got more records for, um, I suppose, land leases or properties or occupations that all would have been related to men. So did this give your research a different dimension when you're telling, you're telling your story from the female perspective, from Caroline's? Um, so who Edward Kearney marries. So tell us something about the finding the female voice in the archives. Yes, well, it's harder work than doing um, some other kinds of male-focused history. And it was particularly hard work in the case of this family, who I became fascinated in because of her widowhood and the inheritance questions. Um, But they're not a family who left any letters that have survived, Mm -hmm. as far as I know, nor did they leave any diaries. And some historians who wanted to find a female voice would look for a good cache of letters or a diary, and then they would feel that they really had a way into that woman's life. But I didn't have that, and I'd already had a lot of experience from my work on Montreal and trying to write the histories of women who really didn't leave many records. Mm. Um, so I knew I was going to write it from her perspective because I do women's history, and that's what I was interested in, and the and her, this family saga is interesting to me for the damage that it did to the widow and, and the children. Um, so in the absence of letters or diaries, um, I started with the sources that took, allowed me to find this history in the first place, and that was the legal records that were generated when Caroline contested the will that her husband, Edward Carney, left. So legal legal records were um, really rich in Australia. Unfortunately, on the Irish side, they Mm. were all blown up when all the other archives disappeared. Um, But so, so I started with the legal records. And the wonderful thing now when you're writing family histories is being able to use ancestry or um, find your past to piece together the demographic skeleton of people's lives. Mm. Um, so that allowed me to see you know, where they moved, when, um, that kind of thing. And then the other wonderful thing in Australia and New Zealand is the fact that uh, people have digitized all the 19th, almost of the 19th century newspapers. So you can yeah. search by names of people or names of boats or names of sheep stations and, and find more evidence. Um, so really the whole book is a result of me trying to piece together these shards of evidence fragments from a range of different sources, both digital and um, real, and also visiting the places where she lived Mm. and trying to visualise what they would have been like in the 19th century when she was there. Yeah, I mean, it just, it kind of really shows us how the historian is a detective, isn't it? Um, and I mean, it is, it's an amazing piece of work from a research perspective. You can you can kind of just see it as you read in the book, how it's all pieced together. One aspect before we go into kind of more about, I suppose, the, the marriage and the after effect of the marriage. So 
the fact that we, we discussed this actually in episode three of our own series here about mixed marriages in Ireland, which is the marriage between a Catholic and a Protestant. And of course, what we were discussing before is that how this causes huge controversy, especially in the 19th century in Ireland. But from your research, do you think it caused controversy? So here we have a Protestant woman, Caroline, who marries this. Um, Irish, so she's from England, an English Protestant woman who marries an Irish Catholic man. And does this cause controversy in Australia at the time? Or do you think the controversy that's, that ends up coming from it is more about Edward Kearney's family in Ireland who interrupt to cause the, the issue? Um, I do think it is that the conflict emerges when his family in Ireland realises that uh, not only he's married a Protestant, but he hasn't forced her to convert to Catholicism mm-hmm. or taught the, taught the kids Catholicism. Um, I think when Edward Carney arrived in Australia, he was pretty lax, lax, lackadaisical about his Catholicism. And even if he hadn't been, there were virtually no structures to practice Catholicism in the places that mm. he was living. Um, so in South Australia, where he is first, there's no Catholic church until quite a, in the area that he's in until um, later on in his time there. He's living in the outback. Priests didn't um, visit the outback stations until some time after he's married. So I think he uh, both didn't give up completely, but he, he didn't care that much about his religion. And much mm-hmm. later, Caroline will say that he permitted her to raise the children as Protestants. He didn't care much about his religion. He went sometimes to Protestant um, services at on neighbouring stations and things like that. So it's really when he, he later in life, thinking he's dying, goes back to Ireland to visit his family there, mm-hmm. Since he's left, his youngest brother has become a very fervent Catholic priest in in Moat, um, County Westmeath. And I think Brother Patrick, who sounds to have been a very obstinate, stubborn and fervent man, committed Mm. to not only rebuilding Catholicism in his area, but also to Irish nationalism of all sorts of appealing forms and not appealing forms. Mm. Um, He just decides he's going, he's, this just cannot be. And um, Brother Patrick, in the simplest form, I think, kind of hatches a plot. He makes sure that Edward Carney goes back to Australia with another brother, William, that he has a set of priests clothed with him, and that the family take on the task of Catholicizing the family. It's so interesting, uh, Bettina, in terms of uh, the kind of structures that the will contains. So, I mean, I think inheritance can determine our lives in many ways, you know, not only um, materially, but also in terms of values. And here is, a, here is a religious tradition that the family are very keen to keep alive. So um, would you explain to our listeners about the dilemma Caroline faces as the result of her husband's will? I certainly can. I mean, the reason I ended up writing a whole book about Caroline's dilemma was because I was struck by the main clause in his will and the clause that she goes on to contest. And had she not contested that clause, I wouldn't have known anything about this. Um, So 
Edward was dying when he wrote his will, and he left. Um, he promised that his widow, Caroline, would have a reasonable amount of support, an annuity of £100 a year, which would place her in the middling middle classes of the time. He left further money to support their six children. So this was all doing what a man was meant to do, which was support his family from the grave. However, he also made the condition that they would only receive this money should they move to Ireland and live in a house that his her brothers-in-law were going to choose for her, or his, his brothers and the brother-in-law were going to choose for her. If not, she would receive some support for two years and then nothing. So this struck me as the most draconian provision I had ever read in a men's will. And I'd been reading wills in Quebec for a long time. I'd looked at wills in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and I had never seen a man try to force migration on his family. So that, to me, is one of the central questions that, or one of the central threads of Caroline's dilemma. Could a man use his will to force his widow and family to migrate to a country somewhere else across the globe. And I, I want to underline Caroline, as far as I can tell, had never been to Ireland in her life. She'd been raised in England and in Australia. And requiring her to leave Australia also took her away from the fairly rich network of kin, all of whom lived um, in a sort of rather large circle, um, stretching up from Rhode in South Australia into the hinterland. So the will was not just forcing her to move somewhere else and live under the control of her brothers-in-law, but also to leave behind her major support system, her own sisters especially, and brother. I mean, it, it is absolutely extraordinary. Um, before we go on to the Caroline actually arriving and going to Ireland, there's one story that really particularly hit me, which is something actually that I keep even thinking about, because um, the Melbourne Punch, what they called the religious kidnapping of Caroline's daughter, Maria. So this, so I'm interested if you could maybe tell our listeners what happens here, because this is after Edward has died, after the, the will has been really, I suppose, she's trying to come to terms with what it says in the will. She goes to visit, I think, was it her 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 sister or part of a family. Mm. And in the meantime, this happens. But what I find extraordinary about this is that this is by the Sisters of Mercies who were a local order to Kearney's family. So maybe if you just give us an idea of what happens in this religious kidnapping. Yes, to me, this is probably the saddest part of this overall quite tragic Mm. inheritance saga that I've written about. Um, so Caroline's husband has died. She's remained on their station at Lockhart, which is being run by the brother William, who is a not very pleasant man to understate it. Um, he's trying to push her into becoming Catholic, but he also seems to have this other notion of the ways in which he can Catholicize the family. So when Caroline's, as you say, when Caroline was off visiting her sister on a nearby station, her nearby is two days horse ride away or something like that in the outback, um, he takes Maria Ellen, her only daughter and oldest child, travels the 500 kilometers or more south to Geelong, and as you say, places her in this convent run by the Sisters of Mercy, the Irish order, um, and... Um, 
then, I guess, returns. So when Caroline learns about this, this is another blow on top of everything that's happened so far, the condition and the will, the invasion of the station by the Catholic relatives. And now her only daughter has been taken away from her. So she um, goes to Melbourne with her brother-in-law, hires a lawyer, um, goes to visit Mother Xavier and says, you know, I also was was appointed as a... um, guardian of my children and I want you to give my daughter back and uh, Mother Superior argues that William also, you know, William was a guardian and she's not going to give the daughter back and that, you know, that's very common I, I had a similar um, story in a mixed marriage in, in Montreal where a, a Catholic nun refuses to give a child back to a Protestant mm. parent I think that was quite common across across these colonies and places where the sectarian conflict and the, and the deeply held religious beliefs of Catholics and Protestants pitted them against each other. Mm. And then the saddest part of the story, I don't know if I should give away all of it in case there are any potential readers out there, <laughs> is that um, uh, Caroline won, wins the case. She's basically claiming habeas corpus, the right to to have her daughter's body, but the daughter wants to go back to the convent and does so. And I think um, that uh, Maria Ellen is enrolled in what's really a very prestigious girls' secondary school, boarding Mm -hmm. school, and is probably, for the first time in her life, surrounded by women and not these rough and potentially sexually dangerous men that Mm. peopled the stations of the outback. Uh, She may have loved that. They're the daughters of the elite. She may have enjoyed that. Her life must have been calmer than in the religious war zone that was their station after the carnies from Ireland uh, went there. Mm. So she decides she wants to stay in the convent and, um, you know, might have had an education and had a wonderful life, except apparently she caught measles or something. And, and died within three months of, of entering this, this Catholic complex that included an orphanage at the girls' school, um, various other institutions, and the convent. Mm. It's, I mean, it is. I, I agree with you. It's, it's actually a heartbreaking aspect of it. I was just saying to Barbara, I was speaking to my mother back in Dublin about this the whole story, and she became obsessed with the with the story of the daughter um, as well. And, and speaking of Dublin, um, that's the other issue is that when Caroline actually goes to Dublin, so she does actually move with, with her children, uh, the remaining children, of course, not Maria, to Dublin. Do you, do we get any idea of how she's seen? Because you've got, on one hand, she's an English Protestant who arrives into a very politically charged time in Ireland and especially in Dublin. So is she kind of seen at that stage with suspicion or is she respected as, as kind of by the Anglo-Irish as an elite? But because I'm also thinking from their perspective, she's actually not really part of the Anglo-Irish culture. She is, after all, after coming from Australia and she's come from a colony. So do we have any idea of how she's treated in Dublin? I wish I had a good answer to that, Sondra. I don't really. Um, What I do know is that the house that the brothers-in-law choose for her is a pretty luxurious house in Sandy Mount, close to the Strand, um, isolated from the dangers of Dublin mm-hmm. um, in an area that wealthier people were fleeing to at that time to escape the poverty, grime and crime, I guess, of Ireland. Um, her neighbours are 
probably mostly English Protestants, certainly mm. the families that her sons end up um, hanging out with and marrying into are English Protestant. Um, but I couldn't find any evidence that really helped me understand whether she had much to do with other English Protestant families there. Um, I think she had a bit to do with her um, with her husband, dead husband's brother's families, um, especially because one of her sons ends up eloping to Dunedin with um, <laughs> with his cousin. <laughs> but uh, my suspicion is, oh, I certainly know that the brothers kept a careful watch on her. They blamed her when her three sons escaped from the Catholic boarding school that they had put them in. Um, um, Bettina, uh, on the... Um, from here in Dunedin, we're being warned that uh, we're near the end of the show. So oh, okay. um, we love the book and we encourage our listeners to, to read it. And thank you so much for telling us the story of a woman who, you know, whose life was absolutely changed by this will and over which she had no control. Uh, it, you've you've told it in a very lively and compelling way, and we thank you for that. It's history worth repeating. Well, Thanks. thank you. <laughs> Great to talk. ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.